Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 22nd, 2014. I had to think about that one for a, for a minute. This year is going by awfully, awfully quickly. Uh, I won't say it's the end of the world next week, but the time seems to be going faster and faster as I get old, I guess, and, and my father told me it would, so uh, I, my days just fly. I can't believe almost two months of this year is shot already. This is a program which should really not have to be done in this venue, but because we should expect anyone coming to Christian Israel identity to have already understood Bible 101. But there are many clowns who have taken refuge by calling themselves identity Christians or or associating themselves with Christian identity or or adopting at least some of the paradigms and and some of the language that we use. And and those people are anything but um, knowledgeable of Scripture. They suppose that Canaanites could be accepted or, or they imagine that Jews are Judah or, or that all Judah are Jews. What we have the Ephraim Scepter lunatics that, that believe that all Judah, all Judah are Jews and none of them are any good. And um, I, I don't know, I guess it's only, a, it, it's, it's ridiculous, the Ephraim Scepter thing. And, and things like that, what we're going to address tonight, in spite of people such as these, and not because of them, but in spite of them. Well, we're not looking to help them. I mean, the Ephraim Skepter people I've ever met, I'll name them Russell Walker, Buddy Johnson, Charles Watt, Scott Butt. I haven't met them, but I know them from emails. I know them from Internet forums. I've corresponded with them in, in writing. They're just arrogant clowns. And, and um, what we have to do programs like this, from time to time so that people don't get caught up with the rabbit holes dug by arrogant clowns. So this 15th segment of Pragmatic Genesis, we're going to discuss the Canaanite tribes in Israel because, well, there were ostensibly at least one and and possibly two, but we're not sure, and, and I sort of doubt it, and I'll give my reasons for that. And we're going to discuss the three tribes of Judah. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight to help me with this presentation. And and hopefully, I I have to apologize for all of the technical difficulties I've had. The last time we were on together, Brian, you couldn't do the program with me because somebody in the talk show chat told me that they were hearing me fine, but I realized that nobody in talk show was hearing me. That person was in the talk show chat, but he was listening on the Christogenia stream, but when I suspected somebody on TalkShoe could hear me, I, I, I imagined the problem to be on your end. Today, I had to strip down my, my, um, the computer I used to stream my audio, reinstall the software, reinstall the drivers, and, and I got it to, to work fine, except as you noticed before the start of the program, when, when I add music, there's a, a background noise that sounds like I'm in a wind tunnel, so I'm going to have to look into that during the week. All right. Well, well, hello. Do you have any opening comments, anything to say, any, anything that's um, – I don't know if you listened to last week's program or not. It, it was um, basically on the descendants of Esau and Ishmael. And, and one thing I'd like to recap from last week is the fact, and, and it's a scriptural fact, that 
there is absolutely no hope for, for uh, well, there's no hope for anybody except the children of Israel and the rest of the Adamic race. But the, the Edomites are not counted in, in that, even though Esau was Jacob's brother, Esau married Canaanite women, and, and there's no hope for the Canaanites, and we'll see that tonight in one of the tribes of Judah, right? There's no hope for the Canaanites, and there's no hope for, for any of the bastard races, and that includes all of Esau's offspring. Everything in the prophets about the children of Esau is about destruction and doom. Right, and as we were discussing earlier, our people so often confuse geography with ethnicity or race, and I pointed out that example, one of the Byzantine emperors who was married to a Bulgarian, I believe a Bulgarian or a Hungarian princess, who was herself descended from an emperor of her tribe who had married a woman from the land of the Cumans. And that's what the history says. The text says the woman was from the land of the Cumans, you know, the Turkic tribe. It doesn't say that the woman was a Cuman. Well, well right. People move, and, and we consistently confuse genealogy and geography. We do it all the time. There's all kinds of examples of that in the Bible. I mean, Ruth is the, 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 um, the, the so-called Moabite, right? Ruth was one of the signal episodes where, where um, genealogy, where they must have known what they were talking about at the time because the children of, of um, Israel inhabited most of the land of Moab. But just like today, I mean, we have white people that, that are call, called after Indian names and, and white areas where whites dwell that are called after Indian names from the people that dwelt here before time. If I say you're, you're an, 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 um, from Michigan or, or you're from Minnesota or, or Wisconsin, they're all Indian names. That doesn't mean you're an Indian. Right. That, that There's many other examples of that. I'm just picking out the first three that came to my head, but... There's Massachusetts. That's an, that that word is a corruption of, of a supposed American Indian name. That there's all sorts of um, examples of that in in towns in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and and where, where the settlers thought they were naming the place after the Indians or or adopting the Indian names of the place. But, but yeah, you know, from the people before them, the people that they pushed out. It was probably a huge mistake for us to name anything in this country after Indians and except we should have anglicized everything, but but it happened. Just like it was a huge mistake when we went to California not to change all the Spanish names to to Anglo names and, and, and right. to have places named New Mexico. That that's just crazy. We should have should have never named one of our states New Mexico. <laughs> It's bred trouble and confusion in, in the minds of people all through time. What well, we've been making that error of confusing genealogy and geography all through time. So several hundred years from now or 500 years in the future, if there are still people around to have historical records and to care, they might read and they say, oh, this guy was from Ohio or he was from Minnesota. Oh, he must have been from the Minnesota Indian tribe. Well, well, absolutely. I, I mean, it, it's that that thinking always leads to to um, suspicion and confusion about somebody's race. But when you say so and so was from the land of Moab or so and so was from Puerto Rico, well, does that mean that he's a mestizo? 
Does that mean he's some kind of half-breed Indian Spaniard Jew? I don't know. That's more than half, but that's what most Puerto Ricans are. Right. So just saying that somebody is from the land of Canaan does not mean that they are racially a Canaanite. Well, well, no, and we're going to see that in, in Simeon, and, and this is um, this is important. There's three ways to interpret this word. I'm going to read the, the Canaan. This the first section of this program is about the Canaanite tribes in Israel, the descendants of Simeon. This has to be addressed. We can't do a pragmatic Genesis series without honestly addressing all the questions that we think can be raised. Genesis 46:10. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin, or Yakin, that should probably be, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. And Exodus 6.15 corroborates that Shaul was the son of a Canaanitish woman. Now, now let me read um, Numbers 26.12. The sons of Simeon, after their families, of Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, of Jamin, the family of the Jaminites, of Jachin, the family of the Jachinites, of Zarah, the family of the Zarhites, and, and we see that there's a tribe of Judah with that name also, so, so that always causes confusion, right? Of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. These are the families of the Simeonites, 20 and 2,200. So, so we have these Shaulites after the Exodus, and, and Shaul was said to be a son of a Canaanitish woman. But there's nowhere in Scripture where Simeon is ever um, criticized, upbraided, or, or these people are ever distinguished as being different or aliens or cursed or evil, or, or, or anything like that. There's nothing, that there, the, the scripture is basically silent on it, and, and objective one way or the other, as to who these people are, who this Canaanite woman was, or this, well, we don't know who she was. However, there's three ways to take this term. She could be from one of the tribes of Canaan. Yes, she could. She could be an accursed Canaanite by race. Or she could be a Canaanitish woman by geography. And we have another example of that in the story of Rahab, who, who was an innkeeper. I mean, I know the scripture says she's a harlot. Clifton Emma Heiser wrote a pretty extensive paper on that. And there's a confusion over the meaning of the Hebrew word, which was translated into the Septuagint. And Josephus understood that Hebrew word in a different light. Flavius Josephus, who was also a reader of Hebrew, he understood that word to mean an innkeeper. When you study the roots of the Hebrew word, you'll understand that, that, it, that it primarily means a woman who deals in trade, not necessarily of her own flesh, of her own body. So, so there's a derivative word that means a harlot. The original word simply refers to some, a, a woman merchant. And that's also the case here. The word Canaanite referred to one of the peoples of the tribes of Canaan, those accursed peoples. But it also became, and there's clear instances of this in Scripture, 
It also became a word which meant a merchant. And this woman could have been a merchant woman. Or she could have been like Rahab, an Adamic inhabitant of the land of Canaan, because people move. There were all kinds of Adamic people living in the land of Canaan from the surrounding tribes, from the, the, the children of Joktan and Peleg, and, and from the children of Midian, and, and from the children of, of Aram. There were all sorts of Adamic people in the area. And she could have been of any one of those tribes and simply dwelt in the land of Canaan. She could have been a merchant, or she could have been a racial Canaanite. So there's three choices. But what we have to look at is whether or not there's anything in Scripture which chastises, upbraids, or, or, or um, criticizes Simeon for marrying outside of his race. And, and there's nothing in Scripture that supports that idea. Nothing whatsoever. So we can't accuse Simeon of being a race mixer because his wife, for whatever reason, is called a Canaanitish woman. With Judah, it's a different story. And let me just read... Um, I want to read a, a few pieces of Scripture that show that, that there certainly was a legitimate Israelite tribe of Simeon that, that did do the right thing and did obey their God and did do what they were told. And, and I'll, I have three scriptures here. I don't know if you want to read any of it, but um, I would start with Joshua chapters 19 and 21, show that um, Simeon's inheritance was with that of Judah, and it was. It was in the, the towns that Simeon inherited when the lots were thrown. All of those towns were in the land that had been given to Judah. However, after Judges 1, Simeon is not mentioned again until the recapitulations of the books of Chronicles. And historically, Simeon is only later mentioned. After the book of, of Judges, Simeon is only mentioned two times, in two places historically. And that's 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 9, and chapter um, 34, verse 6. And both times, in both of those places, Simeon is mentioned as part of a remnant, along with some of the other tribes of Israel, which were left with Judah. From this, we see that while Simeon's inheritance was within Judah, the tribe itself must have been split off with Israel in the divided kingdom. And the prophecy about the divided kingdom surely indicates that, because Jeroboam was given, you know, the, the prophet took his, his um, garment and cut it in 12 pieces and kept two and gave him 10, that that prophecy alone insists that Simeon was, the, you know, the tribe when the kingdom divided was with the northern kingdom and not with Judah, even though their inheritance was for the most part in Judah. So the tribe must have been split off with Israel in a divided kingdom, and therefore much of it must have been deported with the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. I don't. If you want to read from um, Two Chronicles, chapter fifteen, from verse eight here in, in, in right. the notes I sent you. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded, the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of Yahweh that was before the porch of Yahweh. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon 
For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that Yahweh his God was with him. Right, right. And that word strangers, that doesn't really mean strangers. That's the word dare, and it means sojourners, right? These are people from the tribes of Israel. In, in the time of Asa, Israel hadn't been deported yet, and, and these are that these are sojourners from the tribes of Israel who are in the land of Judah, right? And, and that's who this is referring to. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the next place where Simeon is mentioned, it speaks of the reforms in the remnant of Judah, and we could see that there's a remnant of Israel. Not all of them were taken by the Assyrians, and there were reforms that, that, that um, King Hosiah of Josiah of Judah enforced amongst the remnant of Israel also, if you want to read that from 2 Chronicles 34. 4. All right. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down in the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon graves of them, upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. Now, now Josiah was a, a little bit at the time of Hezekiah when there was a great reform in, in, um, in Judah. And, and in the time of Hezekiah, all of Judah was deported, except the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And those people, after the Assyrians had, had passed and the threat was over with, they spread back into the rest of Judah from Jerusalem, but for the most part, most of Judah was deported with the Assyrians. Now, um, that there was a lapse from the word of Yahweh again after Hezekiah and Josiah instituted further reforms, and um, that the Jerusalem survived as Judah survived as a nation for several decades after Josiah, but not long before it was finally destroyed by the Babylonians. The, the blessings of um, Jacob to Levi and Simeon, now, now Levi, we see, was divided up purposely and, and uh, amongst the other 11 tribes, or really 12, because Joseph became two tribes, right? So, so Levi was split up amongst those 12 tribes, and and that's part of the fulfillment of Genesis 49 and Jacob's blessing upon Levi and Simeon, what he said about each of his sons before his passing, right? That they weren't all necessarily blessings. I mean, they sort of were, but it, it wasn't all positive. The, the, um, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. This is Genesis from 49.5. Oh, is this, when, they're being, is this when, they're, when they were being cursed and scattered? Well, well, they were being blessed by Jacob before his passing, but yeah, they were, they were um, he was like upset. I said, it wasn't all positive, right? Right, because he was, he was upset that they had slain the entire city of that, the um, Canaanite prince, the one who raped their sister. Shake him, right. 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 He was upset that, that they had, um, he, he thought that they were rash and wayward 
in doing that and, and that they acted in anger and, and cruelty and that they shouldn't have acted in that manner, right? Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall, meaning they destroyed that city. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I have to wonder, though, why why is Jacob calling, you know, down upon God to basically scatter them? Why is he announcing this proclamation against them? He says in their anger they slew a man. He should be keeping in mind, though, that the man was, first of all, a Canaanite, and second... He raped, I mean, that was Jacob's only daughter, if I'm not mistaken, and the Canaanite raped her, defiled her. Well, right, but I think that Jacob was more concerned about his word, his honor, and, and, and things like that. It's hard to tell because the actual incident is so, um, so briefly reported in Scripture. Right, and it seems odd, but too, we that... don't. We can't be certain that we have all the details concerning this incident, right? Jacob, of course, I, I, I kind of get the idea that he was a hands-off father and he probably wasn't a very good one because, if I'm not mistaken, his daughter was wandering around the land of Canaan going into those cities unescorted, unaccompanied, and the opportunity existed for one of those Canaanites to rape her, and he eventually did, which that to me seems odd in antiquity for a, a teenage woman to just roam around the countryside on her own. Well, well, we don't really know that, right? Because the Bible, first, some of the information you have may be from the book of Jasher. There's a very popular account of this story in what's called the book of Jasher, and I don't know how much of that can be trusted. All right. I honestly don't, right? It's embellishments. It's been embellished upon. It's been interpolated and added to, and I don't know if I really want to trust the book of Jasher as we know it. We don't know that Dinah was alone. I'm sure she would have been escorted, but here, wherever she went, but here we have unto this, um, this man is a, is a king of Shechem. He, he's a, um, Shechem is, is, ostensibly a sizable city where Jacob is only one family unprotected on his own. So, so we don't exact, if we stick to the Genesis account and ignore the embellishments and interpolations and, and whatever the book of Jasher says, we don't have a whole lot of information on this. Yeah. You know, he, he was the prince of the country, which means that his, his father was the, the, the king of the city-state, basically, even though Shechem was probably a small city-state, it was still a city-state. So this man was um, probably able to send a, 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 an armed force from the city to take Dinah when the time was right. We don't know that, but, you know, the, the, um, the details here are pretty scarce. Right. The details that, I, I mean, I'm sure we could count on a Genesis account, but the Genesis account is not telling us very much. So I wouldn't trust entirely the, um, the account as we see it 
in, in the book of Jasher. I right, but we, 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 we do know at the very least Jacob is upset, and instead of telling his sons, you know, good job, you satisfied your sister's honor, you avenged her honor, he's actually basically chastising them. Well, well, right, but I think that he was chastising them for their rashness and because they acted in anger in, instead of acting with wisdom. Mm. You mean he, he thinks they went overboard by wiping out the whole town? or? Well, well the Book of Jasher says that, that they, yeah, yeah, right, the Book of Jasher embellishes on that too. But, but basically, yeah, they did wipe out the whole town and... and um, yeah, they acted in, in they acted rashly and in anger. I think that's why Jacob was upset with them for for their lack of prudence, and, and um, he he basically states that here. So I, I don't he, he should have been upset with Judah for the Canaanite woman, right? But but he was upset with Jacob because of the story with Dinah. We have very little information. It, about Dinah in this story. I mean, it's the whole thing's just a, a handful of verses in Genesis chapter 34. You could read it if you want. You want me to um, pull up Genesis 34 right now? Sure. The whole one, or you want me to start somewhere specific? Well, well, it starts, the, the story that's pertinent right. starts with one. All right. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Sechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Sechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel and lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Sechem longeth for your daughter, I pray you give her to give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get your possessions therein. And get you possessions therein. So basically he's calling on them to make a satanic covenant. Well, well absolutely, to, to race mix with the Horites, yes, or the, or the Hivites, they're Canaanites. But there's no doubt they're, they're genetic Canaanites. And Sechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Sechem and Hamor his father deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister, and they said unto him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But 
If ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Sechem, Hamor's son. And the young man, the young man, deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all of the house of his father. That's odd. They're referring to him as honorable, even though he's already raped a woman. And Hamor and Sechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of the city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell on the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Sechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised all that went out of the gate of his city. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brethren, took each man his sword, and came upon the city boldly, and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor, and Sechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dina out of Sechem's house, and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and spoiled the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took the sheep, and their oxen, and their asses, and that which is in the city, and that which was in the field. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Now, what are they doing with the women they're taking captive? They're not going to use them as concubines, are they? Well, well, I would hope not, because then what would be wrong with them giving her, giving them her sister? Right. I, I'm just wondering why would they bother taking any captives? Why not just, you know, burn the whole city to the ground, everybody in it? And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I, being few in number. They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Well, well right. And, and the, the carnal immediate mind would say that Jacob was wrong and, and that Simeon and Levi should have been rewarded. Ultimately, Levi was rewarded. He, he received the priesthood. Moses and Aaron were of the tribe of Levi. The Levites were priests for, for um, they were the priests of Israel for 1,800 years after this. 50, well, 1,700 years probably after this until the Edomite take over, right? But, well, they were, and, and a lot of them were priests after the Edomite takeover, but they had a hard time of it. The, the, um, Simeon received no reward. He was totally skipped over. Simeon was totally skipped over in, in the inheritance for some reason, and, and we might attribute it to this. Now, Judah had a Canaanite wife, but Judah wasn't skipped over. And it, I mean, Judah received the scepter. When Reuben disqualified himself from the um, from the double portion of his father's inheritance, being the oldest son and the family priesthood and the family rulership, rulership Reuben lost all that, and, and 
it was dispersed, and, and Levi got a share, and Joseph got the double portion, and Judah got a share, but Simeon got nothing. And Simeon, if I'm not mistaken, was the second oldest son. She conceived again and bears. I'm pretty, yes. And Leah conceived and bare a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely Yahweh has looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because Yahweh has heard that I was hated, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon was the second oldest son. He certainly would have been expected to receive one of the, the um, the division of Reuben's inheritance, the priesthood, the scepter, the double portion, but he got none of it. He was totally skipped over. Where Levi was also distributed among the tribes, as Jacob says in Genesis 49, along with Simeon, but Levi was distributed among the tribes openly by having the priesthood assigned to him, by inheriting the priesthood, which Reuben forfeited. So, so it, it's, it, it's always been a question in my mind, why was Simeon skipped over if Levi took part with him in Shechem and Levi was still rewarded? And why was Simeon skipped over if Simeon had a Canaanite wife? If she's a Canaanite, I don't think so. We gave the reasons. Simeon was never criticized for that where Judah still received the scepter in Genesis 49, but Judah also had a Canaanite wife. So he received, and, and Judah was chastised for having a Canaanite wife, and we'll get to that later in this presentation. So, so Simeon didn't do anything worse than Levi. He didn't do anything worse than Judah, but he was skipped over entirely, and he was older than both of those brothers. So, so there's a question with Simeon there that I don't think can ever be answered because Scripture simply doesn't give us the information necessary to answer that question. It just doesn't. Not, not, I mean, I may have missed something, but I, I don't think so. Right. So, so that's, that, that's a good question, but it's going to stay a question. As far as, I, I mean, there might be information out there. I wouldn't want to go looking for it in the Talmud. Honestly. So, so that's always going to be a question. Jacob was angry. Jacob was angry. Jacob felt that his word was violated. Can we look at Jacob as having a lack of faith? Well, well not necessarily, because right, perhaps Jacob would have been treated with Yahweh, and, 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 and Yahweh, vengeance against Yahweh's enemies, belongs to God, and, and perhaps Jacob would have been treated with God. We don't know that, right? But Jacob perhaps would have been treated with God and sought a solution from God about the Dinah situation. So Jacob feels his son, his sons acted rashly, and, and he was upset with it for that reason. I, I don't think I want to add anything to that assessment because of the, um, the, the, the sparsity of the account as it sits in Scripture and the questions that can be raised because the account is so sparse. Ostensibly, even though they were Canaanites, a lot of innocent men died to pay for this crime. So, so that, that's another 
way to look at it. I, I mean, we don't we, we hate to look at children of the devil as innocent, right? But, of you know, course, Bill, but from a practical point of view, if they wanted to kill the prince of the city and his son, how could they do that if they didn't go through the um, the, the peasants, the guards, you know, the the people? They're surrounded by an entire city's worth of men who would fight to protect their prince, so they had to go through the men to get to the prince. Well, well, yeah, we could, we could, um, we could draw a lot of plausible scenarios, but it, it's it, it's um, with such a sparse story, it's it's difficult to make a fair assessment based on the the, um, the few facts that we have. I wouldn't be so quick to criticize Jacob. Jacob was surely confident that he was right because the blessing in Genesis chapter 49 is given out many years after the, the incident at Shechem. I mean, Jacob had many decades to think about this before he blessed his sons, right? And he still was upset with them, even after 50, 60, 70 years however long it was. Comments? No. Well, I mean, it's, it's understandable. He's, he's concerned, but it seems to me that he's more concerned about temporal matters than spiritual matters. You know, they're going to form an alliance. They're going to overrun me. My land will be um, seized. My house will be left desolate instead of, you know, trusting in Yahweh. Well, well, that's true, too, and, and that shows Jacob's own humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Even after receiving all the blessings of, of Abraham and, and Isaac falling upon his shoulders and, and his own um, walk with God, so to speak, the, the, the wrestling of the angel, the, the, um, the incident with Esau, the, the, um, the, the, vision, the, the visions which he had at Bethel, even after all that, he, he still has secular earthly concerns, yes. So that shows his huma- humanity. Now, you're right. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're right. But do we, want to, um, do, do we want to criticize him simply for being human? I, I don't think I would do that because we're all human. Right. I'm saying it's an understandable reaction, but it, it's not one that is commendable. Well, well, right. To a great degree, we could always second-guess him. Yes, it's easy to from here, but I don't know about from there. And, and perhaps there were things that happened there that, that we simply don't have enough information to make a judgment. That's why God is true and every man is a liar. Only God has all the facts, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's a lot of lessons in Scripture that aren't so apparent. Being criticized for their actions at, at Shechem, no matter whether we think they're right or not, right? Because we 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 would have loved to have seen Simeon and Levi kill all the evil Canaanite bastards. There's no doubt that that's our um, that that's our own human side. Being concerned with the actions which occurred at Shechem, Levi and Simeon were both going to be spread across all of the other tribes scattered in Israel. Levi, for Levi, that was public because he received the priesthood and, and um, you know, it was explicit how he was divided amongst the other tribes. Simeon, it's not explicit. It, it's, we're not really told how it happened. 
except that his inheritance was with Judah, and he ended up being split off. The tribe ended ended up, for the most part, being split off with um, what was the northern kingdom in the days of the divided kingdom. So, what we don't really, what we except for those couple of mentions which we just read from two chronicles, what where a remnant of Simeon still exists in Judah. We don't know what happened to Simeon. There's no other information about him, and that's probably because of Jacob's words in Genesis chapter 49 concerning him. So Simeon seems to have gotten the greatest punishment. He was the second born. He should have got the double inheritance, or he should have got the priesthood, or he should have got the, the, the scepter, and he didn't get anything. And his Canaanite wife, he was never criticized for that, she may have been an Adamic inhabitant of Canaan, or she may have been a woman who was a merchant and called the Canaanite for that reason. And, and to, to guess that she was a racial Canaanite, even though that's the most obvious of the three choices, is still conjecture. Because then we're, we are accusing Simeon of being a race mixer, but that's one thing that the Bible does not say about him. So I wouldn't accuse Simeon of being a race mixer. And, and that's, you know, that's a sign, I think, uh, of intellectual maturity is when you could take an unknown and set it aside and, and point at it and say, that's unknown, so we're going to leave it there. Instead of having to make a decision one way or another, and 99% of the time you're going to end up being wrong because you're guessing. Intellectual maturity is to be able to point out unknowns and leave them, list all the facts, but leave them as unknowns because we can't know everything. That's my opinion. All right. Genesis... Um, uh, okay, the, the, the word Canaanite can mean merchant, inhabitant of Canaan, or Canaanite woman. And, and Simeon is never criticized in Scripture for his marriage to a Canaanitish woman. And th there may be, well, some uh, misunderstanding of who this woman was simply because we don't have all the facts. On the other hand, now we're going to get into the story of Judah. And Judah married a Canaanite woman, and she, he was definitely criticized for marrying an alien woman. The Canaanite woman that Judah married was a racial Canaanite. And the proof of that is in the scripture. And we're going to get into that story now if you want to read this Genesis um, chapter 38-1, if you don't mind. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hera, or Hera. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her, and she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur, or is that Er. And she conceived again and bare a son, and called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shalah. And he was at Chezeb when she bare him. And, um, oh, okay, 
I do. Um, I, I'm, I just discussed that town in, in my presentation on, on Micah, right? It, it was a, um, a town of Judah later. It, it, was, um, it was a Canaanite town originally. And, and at the time, of, the time of the patriarch Judah, that this is hundreds of years before the Israel, get, you know, the children of Israel in their conquest of Canaan, it's definitely a Canaanite town at this time. So, so there's no doubt this woman is called a Canaanite. She's called the son or, or the daughter of, of a um, Canaanite. That there's no doubt, just like the prince of Shechem, that she is a racial Canaanite. So Malachi chapter 2 proves it. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And if you want to read this, I'm going to look for a passage in John 8. That this is from the prophet Malachi, and he's actually making—he's making, he, he's making a, um, a comment about Judah, but he's also using it in reference to the Judea of his own time. Malachi, have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal, tre- deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. Yeah, you know, look at these words of Malachi, right? And and when Christ tells that the... the, the his opposition, his, his adversaries in the temple, in, in John chapter 8, that there are their father the devil, they said, we be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. And, and it seems to me that Malachi is sort of prophesying and foreshadowing that same conversation which Christ had with, with the Edomite Pharisees. Sure, they were children of Abraham but they were children of Abraham through Esau. And here in Malachi, what we see the same thing. Have we not all one father? Has one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Well, Malachi is basically talking about the division in Judah, and he's attributing it to the Canaanite portion of Judah to the children of Shelah at this time, and he does that by saying that Judah dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. That's what we see Malachi attributing the sin in Judah to, and we see that the patriarch Judah had taken a Canaanite wife, and she, he had three sons with the Canaanite, and we're going to get into that. And only one of those sons survived, but a tribe of Judah came from that Canaanite son. And that tribe of Judah, the, the Shalahites, that tribe was with Judah throughout all of its history. And, and that's what Malachi is attributing the division in Judah to at his time. And Malachi was a prophet of the Second Temple period from um, 
the, the, the time that the second temple was built. So, so he was a prophet of the second temple period in the early 5th century B.C., 550 years, 530 years before Christ. And we'll get into some of that in the other prophets later. That Judah was, that there were three tribes of Judah. That there was Pharez and there was Zerah and there was Shalah. And that's something that we, we, um, we have to set our sights on and understand throughout the Old Testament, right from Genesis, even though that there was further mixing later on with the... Um, well, with the Edomites, there's no doubt, which occurred in the 2nd century and 1st century B.C., there was mixing right from the beginning in Judah. There was a mixed tribe of Canaanites, and, and this is what Malachi is attributing it to, that Judah, Judah married the daughter of a strange god. So there's no doubt that Judah's wife was indeed a racial Canaanite, where Simeon's wife, we really can't come to that conclusion. Are you still with me? Yes. Okay. Well, would you like to read Genesis chapter 38 from verse 6? This is a long one, but it, it, it should be read. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh slew him. Are we given any further details on what, what was the um, full extent of the wickedness? Well, well the, the, you know, this happens quite often in Scripture, where even though these people are enemies of God, they're judged by the law. The reasons for, for slaying them are... are um, it's not arbitrary. Yeah, no, it's not arbitrary. It, it's, it, it's according to the law. God judges his enemies by his right. own law. Well, you know, and heirs um, still the seed on the ground. I thought that was Onan. You know, I might be I might be remembering that from the book of Jasher, right? Right, because <laughs> Onan, we're, we're about to get right into that. I was going to point out, too, Onan, the sin was not that he spilled on the ground, but he was told to raise up seed for his brother's name. You know, the, he was the, used to do it, right, right the, because the, his brother's son would get the inheritance. Right, he was explicitly told the the, the um, right. custom where a brother dies leaving no children, the surviving brother must marry the widow and have children to be raised in the brother's name. Right, and scripture doesn't actually tell us why Er was slain. He was wicked. He was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh slew him. Right. Well, while like, he was a Canaanite, that that would be one reason, but we're not told that, right? Right, and Cain well, was even challenged. That. I'm sorry. I was saying Cain was even challenged to do well, and the first thing he did, you know, he didn't. Yeah, yes, he killed his brother, right. Yahweh always challenged his enemies to do well, and they can't. Right, he challenged them to But we see that in, in, in um, the meeting of John the Baptist with the Pharisees and Sadducees who wanted to know what authority he had to baptize. We see the same thing. John the Baptist challenged them to do well. Paul of Tarsus challenged Herod Agrippa to be a Christian. He knew that he couldn't be, 
He knew that he couldn't be, but, but he challenged him. And, and Herod Agrippa slithered his way out of it like the typical snake, but by just simply re, replying so quickly, do you persuade me to be a Christian? He, he's just like a Jew lawyer. He slid around the question. Of course he couldn't be a Christian. Paul knew it. John the Baptist knew that the Pharisees couldn't repent. He knew it, but he challenged them to do so. Right. Yahweh challenged Cain to do good, and Cain couldn't do good. He turned right around and killed his brother immediately. Challenging a Canaanite to obey the law, knowing, of course, they're a Canaanite. It's not in them to obey the law. Right. But we're not told exactly why it was slain. All right. Except for the... the, the um, the, the conjectures of some of the apocryphal books, which I don't rely on. It's Jasher. I've, I have um, a lot of problems with the book of Jasher. I know it's been quoted, and, and, and Clifton has quoted it, and I think in one of my papers on Christianity, I quoted it, because sometimes it does seem to make a lot of sense. Sometimes the book of Jasher seems to contain a core of truth, and, and I believe it does, but... You know, there's a lot of fantastic elements to the Book of Jasher, and a lot of things that, that when compared to actual history, are just plain wrong, and a lot of the book is certainly untrustworthy. So where do you draw the line? It's hard to tell where to draw the line. It, it really is. You have to read it for yourself and, um, and, and find it in your own heart where, 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 um, what makes sense to you compared to the rest of Scripture. But... I don't like to teach it or quote it or, or anything like that because it's so untrustworthy in so many respects. All right. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased Yahweh, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted, and went up into his, went up unto his sheep shearers, shearers, to Timnath, he and his friend Hera, and Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself. And she and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. I don't understand that one. Covering the face is a sign of a harlot? Well, well, it must have been. It must have been the cultural context context of the times. Uh, I've never been able to to. Um, well, well, I've read a lot of ancient inscriptions. I've never remembered or recognized 
seeing a, a, a corroborating instance. But that's what the, the scripture is telling us, that harlots covered their faces. Well, let's bear one thing in mind, and, and we, broke, we broke this presentation of Genesis 38 with, with a segment from Malachi, and I ran my mouth about that for 10 minutes, so people may not remember. What, what all of this is going on in Genesis 38, in Genesis 38.1 it says, Judah went down from his brethren. So, so Judah separated himself from his family. He may have had, um, you know, herdsmen or, or other people with him from his father's estate. That, that's a possibility, right? Because in those days it was pretty dangerous even for a, for a strong man to travel alone. However, Judah was separated from his family when all this happened. So we see him hanging out, basically, with, with his friend, the Bible calls him, Hira the Adulamite. Hira the Adulamite is a, is a Canaanite, right? So Judah is, not only did he take a Canaanite to life during his sojourn away from his family, but, but he's associating with Canaanites and, and, and um, has himself joined to, to ostensibly a whole bunch of, probably his, his um, Canaanite wife's entire family, right? All right. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge? Wilt thou send it? So in Judah's mind, he's about to consort with a harlot. Well, well, you know, Tamar, Tamar must have been an upright woman, and we're going to talk about that a little more later, but Tamar, the, the name Tamar means upright. It, it, it actually, I believe, means a palm tree because it, it, it's a word that means upright, and, and trees are upright, right? But, well, um, we're not told who Tamar is by race. That, now, that's another question, well, when we go to the Book of Jasher, I believe the Book of Jasher says that Tamar was an Elamite. Now, the land of Canaan well, was basically a, a, a well-traveled land of merchandising, port cities, caravan trails. The, the Egyptians had, had a, um, many of the port towns of Canaan were subject to Egypt at the time, that there was a great Cushite Babylonian presence in the land of Canaan at the time. There was a Hittite presence in the land of Canaan at the time. There were people from all over Mesopotamia in, in these crossroads. That There's little doubt when we actually look back at the historical context. And we can see some of this in inscriptions such as the Tale of Saduhi, which is an Egyptian story about the land of Canaan and the travels of Saduhi through, through the land of Canaan. So, so there's, you know, there's ostensibly many people from many tribes in the land of Canaan. It, it's, it's a very cosmopolitan place. And, well, from what we see about the Sodom and Gomorrah story and the tales from, from towns like Jericho and places like that, well, it's, um, it's well-traveled and, and it's loaded with Canaanites, so it probably... It was probably quite the party area. It was probably quite the, the New York of its time, it, it's, it, in my estimation. I, I mean, that's what we could actually compare it to. That the, um, 
it, it's ostensibly very possible that Simeon's Canaanite wife was simply a woman from another Adamic tribe who lived in the land of Canaan, whose family did business there, bought property there, lived there for, for merchandising reasons, for trade reasons. The same thing with, with Tamar. That is, she could have been from any one of a host of tribes, Adamic, non-Canaanite tribes in the land of Canaan. And Tamar is an upright woman, and Tamar, and, and I'll discuss this in a little bit, Tamar, after we present this chapter, Tamar basically only got what she had coming. She was entitled to what to seed from Judah's family because Judah married her to one of his sons. Judah withheld his third son from her when the first two died. She was getting what she was entitled to, and she took advantage, evidently, of Judah's lack of fortitude, lack of sexual um, continence. Judah evidently was a man who, who had no sexual continence. He was a man who, who Tamar must have known was apt to turn in for a prostitute. Right, so, so I have to was, wonder, you know, um, we're, we're going to see as it develops here in, further in the chapter, he's going to go around asking people, where's that prostitute that was here earlier? And they're going to say there was no prostitute. Then he finds out it's his daughter-in-law, and he's upset. And he wants to, you know, initially he wants to execute her. And I'm wondering what sort of person is he that he's consorting with prostitutes? Well, well, right. Well, well, that's, you know, Yahweh chose Israel not because they were great, the greatest of nations or, or, and, and, and obviously not for their integrity, right? I, I mean, the children of Israel were preserved in spite of themselves on account of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. They weren't preserved because, of, because they were good men. They simply weren't. Uh, I mean, yeah, Joseph was a good man, and, and Joseph had sexual continence. He resisted Pharaoh's wife. Judah was just the opposite. Judah was portrayed as a strong man and, and, and bold and a warrior, but he was sexually incontinent. And that's obvious that that he was he, he was rash when it came to his sexual liaisons because as soon as he broke away from his brethren and and goes to a Canaanite town he, he sees this that this little well well we might picture her as maybe a Jewess maybe a um I, I don't want to throw any names out there some of them are absolutely repulsive but. Yeah, you know, he, he sees this girl, he thinks is good looking, and she's a Canaanite, and he don't care. And he, and he takes her to wife. That, that's the bottom line. And, and she is a Canaanite. She's not an Adamic person living in the land of Canaan. She's a Canaanite. So Tamar knows. Tamar must know that Judah's incontinent. So she goes and plays the whore because she knows that she's going to lure Judah so that she gets what she has coming to him. It's that simple. And, and, and that this must have been the plan of Yahweh our God. Yahweh must have known that Judah was incontinent. He created him, right? He must have known that Judah would go for this prostitute. So he put it in her heart to be there. Otherwise, we would have, if it was up to Judah, that this is the difference between Judah and Esau, right? Esau was a race mixer, and Yahweh gave him no mercy. So there was no tribe of Esau. 
because they're all Canaanite bastards. So Esau found no room for repentance because he had no legitimate offspring. Yeah, you know, he did try to repent, and, and he went out and got himself an Ishmaelite wife. Well, Ishmael was already separated from, from, from Isaac by Yahweh, by God. So Ishmael was already discounted for any part of the inheritance. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Ishmael was discounted, so Esau wasn't um, taking the right steps to redress his past sins. He should have asked his father who he should marry. And he didn't do that, right? So Esau found no room for repentance. Esau was a race mixer. He went after Canaanite women, and Yahweh had no mercy on Esau. Where Judah was a race mixer, and Judah went after a Canaanite woman, but Yahweh had mercy on Judah. There had to be a tribe of Judah because of the promises which Yahweh made to Jacob. It's that simple. Yahweh had mercy on Judah. Yahweh chooses who he will have mercy on and who he won't. We would think that he didn't, well, he didn't treat Esau and Judah the same. Well, he didn't. He didn't do it on account of the promises to, to Jacob and, and, and to Abraham and Isaac. It was up to, Yahweh knew it was Jacob that was going to usurp Esau and be the, the bearer of the covenants and the promises. So it was Yahweh's choice who we should have mercy on and who we shouldn't, as Paul explains in the book of Romans. So Judah didn't receive the mercy of God for Judah's sake. He received it for the sake of his fathers, for the, for the promises made to the fathers. And Tamar was the vessel by which God did that, by which Yahweh God made sure there was a legitimate tribe of Judah. Because if it was up to Judah, it was evidently not going to happen. All right. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will, give, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she now, arose. Now let me say something. Let me interject something here, right? That is a high price. Because that signet, that signet was used by scribes to sign contracts with. You mean to seal okay. like a letter, right? Yeah, yeah, right. If you and I made a contract we would go to a scribe, right? And the scribe would take a, a clay tablet. Often the scribes were Kenites because Kenites were smiths and, and, and um, sometimes they were potters. And we're going to mention that too later on in this presentation. And, and if we don't have enough time tonight, it might be next week. Well, well sometimes the, the, the scribes were potters because they had clay and they had kilns, right? And, and they could roll out the clay and, and they could, write out, inscribe the contract that we were going to make in the clay, right? And then the scribe would make two copies of that, and we would impress them with our signets. And, and, and that was a deed, or, or, or that was a bill of sale, or that was some other sort of contract. And, and I had a copy impressed with your signet. You had a copy impressed with mine. And, and, and that was our record, 
right, of this contract. So Tamar's exacting a pretty high price from Judah, and, and Judah don't care. He wants it, right? So he's going to pay the price. I wonder, though, he, he didn't figure out, you know, she left her veil on during the deed then? I mean, that just seems odd that he, he at no time did he figure out it was his daughter-in-law. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what the custom was, but it's possible that she left her veil on. Or it's it, possible maybe, maybe that was part of the price of, of hiring a whore. I, I don't he, know. I, I can't say. Maybe anonymity was part of I don't know. I, I wish I had literature in ancient inscriptions that would explain it to me, maybe someday I will, but I don't have it now, right? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I don't have enough information to understand what this custom was outside of what we have here in this chapter. All right. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place that said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass, after about three months, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. Now, now let me say that just the fact that Tamar was pregnant would indicate that she was with child by whoredom, right? Just the, if, if Shalah or Judah himself weren't the father, then she would be with child by whoredom. But because she, she's still under the, well, women were property at this time, right? Well, women were treated like property. And this woman just couldn't, just because her husband was dead, she didn't have the right to go just anywhere and sleep with men. She was still bound to Judah's family, right? So, so if, she didn't, if she wasn't given away in marriage by Judah, then she was a whore. So if she was pregnant, she would have been suspected to have been a whore. Right, because they're, they're, that would be the only explanation for it. Right. The, the whoredom, whether it was for pay or not, right? But when you're having sex with with, with um with, with people and and it's not and it's not what what is biblical guidelines and then there's societal guidelines right the Canaanites would have practiced the the guidelines of their own society they wouldn't have been practicing the law of God but even Canaanite society had guidelines for for marriage and and sexual relations and and we see this here where these Canaanites that Judah was living amongst came to him and said that Tamar, your, your daughter-in-law, played the whore. Well, well, she did, unless she was pregnant by Judah. Just the fact that she was pregnant would have indicated that, that, that she was fornicating with somebody, having 
um, unlawful sexual relations with somebody. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, the bracelets, and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shalah my son, and he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth this breach be upon thee? Therefore his name was called Perez. Or Perez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. Zara. The, the word Perez is actually the, the the word that the name Perez comes from. Mm-hmm. It, it's a Hebrew corruption. It's a Yiddish form of, of the Hebrew word, and it means the part. And, and that's why he was named Perez, because of that this breach which the the midwife says, this breach be upon thee. So that's why he was named for res. That the, um, you, you know, m- many people, and, and I've heard this amongst the, um, the Ephraim Skepter clowns and, and other people in, in well, well, who claim to be Christian identity, that many people esteem Tamar to have been a whore, and, and if that were truly the case, the last person she would have chosen to be her first customer was Judah. Tamar simply wanted what she was entitled to. And that's why Judah realized that she was righteous. Because women relied upon having children, especially male children, in order that once they raised the children, the children would in turn look after them in their old age. If a woman raises a son right, the son's going to take care of his mother in her old age he's going to try to look out for her. That's just a, a fact of life. And, and even back then, wives often outlived their husbands by many years. If you have, um, if you're in a household where there are competing wives and you're on a short end of the stick, and Tamar was definitely on the short end of the stick, but those other sons are going to inherit all the property. Tamar's going to be left out in the cold unless she has a son to look out for her in her old age. She only got what she had coming to her. If Tamar didn't stand up for her own interests, there would be no tribe of Judah today at all. There's evidence supporting Tamar's motivation, and that evidence is in Scripture in the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Upon Ruth's being redeemed by Boaz, the woman the women of the place said to Naomi, that, now remember, Naomi went to the land of Moab, right? And, and she had two sons and a husband. They all died in the land of Moab. And Naomi came back to Judah with Ruth. And, and Ruth is her daughter-in-law, right? And, and when Ruth was redeemed, the women of the place said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, which has not left the, this day without a kinsman, 
that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loves thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, has borne him. So, so when Naomi was able to get one of her kinsmen to redeem Ruth and raise up seed to, to, um, to, to, to her, for her sons, that, that seed took the place of Naomi's sons, right? And they would, that Naomi would expect to be supported by those sons when she became an old woman. That's what's going on in Ruth. That was also the, the concern which Tamar had, that, that she, was, she had sons coming to her from this family, and she was even going to play the whore to get them. And, and she had to do that. And Yahweh basically saved the tribe of Judah because the patriarch Judah was sexually incontinent. Yahweh used his sexual incontinence. Yahweh used his sin to, to do something good to ensure that he had legitimate children. Now, if it wasn't important, Ur was Judah's, Judah's oldest son, supposedly. Well, well, to this midwife, it was evidently important which of these twins was born first. And if Ur was a legitimate heir, it, it wouldn't have mattered, mattered. But it was certainly important which of these twins was born first. And, and the rest of Scripture sort of proves that out. So that we would know who, who was the oldest and, 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 and the, um, the, the heir to the double portion and the scepter of Judah. So that we would know that. It was important to know which of these twins was born first, Perez or Zephyr. All right. There's another um, example of scripture of how important it is for a woman to to um, have a son, and that's in Luke chapter one, verses verse twenty-five, where um, the mother of John the Baptist says, "The Lord has dealt with me in the days wherein He looked on me to take away my reproach among men." It was considered a disgrace in Israel to die without issue, but, but it was horrible for a woman to die without a son because she'd have nobody to look out for her in her old age. That, that's just an economic, um, an economic fact. So, so Tamar simply got what she was entitled to when she had to play the whore to get it. But that doesn't make Tamar a whore. That doesn't make Tamar a whore if she only, um, if Judah was her only customer and she got what she had coming to her. She had to use that device in order to, to be justified, in, in order to get her due. And Yahweh must have put that in her heart. There's no doubt. Well, would you like to read the Genesis 49, Blessing of Jacob upon Judah? All right. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, 
He couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his fowl unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garment in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. You know, there's something that Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly. It doesn't tell us how Perez inherited the scepter. It doesn't tell us how the Messiah came from the line of Therese. It doesn't tell us how, but when the children of, um, of Israel conquered the land of Canaan, how the, the, the scepter, you know, it ended up with David because Yahweh had the prophet Samuel anoint David to be king. David was of the house of Perez. And, and the, the house of Perez held the scepter all the way down to, through, through the period of the, the kingdom of Israel. And when Christ appeared on earth, the genealogies carry the, the inheritance and, and the scepter and the lineage of, that, that by which Christ can lay claim to the throne through the house of Perez. And Salah and Ur and Oman and, and, and Salar is the surviving son, and he has children, and he's a tribe in Judah, but there's never any question in Scripture that Salah should get that, that inheritance. Salah never has that inheritance, and it's never challenged. Salah never makes an, an, an assertion of it. There's no record in Scripture. That there's nothing in Scripture that says, hey, why didn't the children of Salah, he was the older son, get this inheritance? And, and it was important to the midwife, and it must have been important to Tamar, which of the sons of Tamar was the oldest son. And, and Fares just gets the inheritance in the scepter. And, and, and um, you know, it's amazing that, that more people don't wonder why. And the only plausible explanation is that Salah is excluded because he's the son of the Canaanite woman. That's the only plausible explanation. But Scripture doesn't tell us that explicitly. We have to look for it. Well, why in Matthew does, um, in, in the lineage of Christ, does the Apostle Matthew count it totally natural to mention Zara, but, but he never mentioned Salah? Not a word. Salah's a Canaanite. That's the only plausible explanation is that Salah's of the Canaanite race, and he can't. He's cursed. He can't inherit. He can't inherit because the tribe of the, the legitimate tribe of Judah can't come through him. And if it weren't for Tamar, playing the whore, there would be no tribe of Judah. 1 Chronicles, chapter 4, verse 21. The sons of Shelah, the son of Judah, were Ur, the father of Lakah, and Laadah, the father of Marashah, and the families of the house of them that wrought fine linen, of the house of Ashbia and Jacob, and the men of Kozabar and Joash and Seraph, who had the dominion in Moab, and Jashubilaham, 
And these are ancient things. There's another translation that says, but these are ancient, but these are ancient records. In, in other words, what, well, it, it, it's telling us that, that perhaps they weren't kept up well. That these were the potters and those that dwelt among, now, now this is the King James Version, right? Those that dwelt among plants and hedges. And, and even though we'd like to see the bastard Canaanites living out in the bushes, that, that's actually a, an error on the part of the King James because plants and hedges were actually the name of two towns that they interpreted as referring to the actual um, botanical references rather than as place names. The towns were Netaim and Gadara. And, and Netaim, it can't be ascertained where Netaim was. It probably wasn't too far from Gadara, but Gadara, there is a Gadara listed among the uttermost cities of the tribe of the children of Judah towards the coast of Edom in Joshua chapter 15, verse 36. So we see that ostensibly these children of Salah lived in the south of Judah towards the coast of Edom, towards the border of Edom. There they dwelt with the king for his work. And, and you know, I, I'm going to conjecture something here. You, you know, the medieval kings of Europe always had some Jews around to, to deal in usury and, and, and to, to act as lawyers and scribes and, and things like that. And, and here we have the same thing in, um, A court Jew. in one in one Chronicles chapter four of, of the children of Shelah, it seems like they fulfilled the typical role that Jews and Jews have fulfilled all throughout history. That that there's nothing new under the sun, right? So, so the children of Shelah must have been used for certain things by the by the later kings of of Judah. It, it's it, it might be a little conjectural, but. That's what I get out of the last clause in, the, in, in, in this passage. Would you like to read Jeremiah chapter 24? Yeah, Jeremiah, yeah, you know, a lot of people say, well, well, there were Canaanites in the tribe of Judah. The, the Ephraim Skepter people make this assertion that all of Judah were bad, and, and therefore all of the, the Jews, that they basically think or, or profess that the tribe of Judah are the Jews, and, and that's simply not right. It's actually, um, it's actually 100% contrary to Scripture. Yes, the tribe of Judah was the first tribe in Israel that became mixed with Canaanites, but, you know, most of the tribe of Judah, most of the tribe of Judah actually did the right thing for, for quite some time, and they actually battled against the Canaanites. So, so it's, it, it's very clear all throughout Scripture that there was a good element to the tribe of Judah, and, and that bad element of the tribe of Judah basically stayed in the background for many centuries. It was always there, and, and it comes out later. That there's no doubt that the Canaanites in Judah, as we see in the prophet Malachi, had a seriously adverse effect on the nation. That there's no doubt whatsoever. But right. that doesn't mean that everybody in Judah was bad. 
Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconi, the son of Jehokiah, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest you, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, and good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, excuse me, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely, thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. So, so we have evil figs in Judah. A lot of people read this and, and they say, oh, so, so, so the, the royalty are bad figs. And that's not what this is saying. It says that there are evil figs in Judah. It says there are good figs in Judah. So we have real Israelites of the tribes of Pharez and Zara in Judah, and even though a lot of the people of Pharez and especially Zara left at an early time and migrated elsewhere, we have both Pharez, for the most part, and some of the tribe of Zara, and Scripture proves this, still in Judah, and, and they're taken away to Babylon for their good. But we have these evil figs. Now, Zedekiah and the princes of Judah are not evil figs. If we read this carefully... Yahweh says that he will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the rest of the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, he is giving them over to the evil figs. In other words, he is surrendering these princes of Judah over to the evil figs. And we see that the... Um, the, the royal line, it, it could be ascertained to some degree, certainly did mingle with the evil figs, and, and a lot of them intermarried with the Edomites later on and, and opposed Christ. So it, it's, it, it's um, fully evident in, in Scripture that there were good figs in Judah and bad figs in Judah, that not all of the tribe of Judah is mixed. That now Jeremiah is only prophesying this about the remnant of Judah, 
Because we have to remember that during the Assyrian invasions, and a lot of people in, in Christian identity omit this and, and don't even want to think about it, especially those that, that, um, that, that disdain the tribe of Judah. A lot of people in the Israel identity miss this for, for um, reasons of their own agenda, especially the Ephraim Scepter heretics, or lunatics, I should call them. 46 fence cities of Judah were taken by the Assyrians. And a couple of hundred thousand people from Judah were taken into the captivity with Israel by the Assyrians. There was a much greater portion of Judah taken by the Assyrians with Israel than were taken later on by the Babylonians back to Babylon. And out of all those people that were left in Jerusalem by the Assyrians, they're the people that Jeremiah is talking about here. The people that are already gone and taken off with the Assyrians to, to, to um, the lands of their captivity, the cities of the Medes, the, those people are already gone and they're already with Israel now in captivity in Assyria. That now, Jeremiah is talking about evil things and good things. He's only talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the, the people that the Assyrians left behind, locked up in Jerusalem with Hezekiah. So that this isn't all of Judah. It's only the remnant that was not taken by the Assyrians. So, so it's, it's, there are a lot of good people of Judah that dwell in Europe today that don't even know they're Judah. It seems, uh, and, and I've been led to believe this, and other people in, in identity, other identity Christians believe that the a good portion of the German nation are actually the tribe of Judah. And it's evident that perhaps the Scots are from the tribe of Judah in, in their travels. So the, the tribe of Judah is alive and well with the other 12 tribes in Europe totally apart from the Jews and totally apart from what happened to the remnant of Judah, which stayed behind in Palestine, which Jeremiah is talking about here. They have a whole separate history from all those Judahites, hundreds of thousands of Judahites that were taken away by the Assyrians. So it, it's, um, it, it's a lot more complicated than just Judah possibly being the Jews. No Jew existed. Nobody that could be called a Jew existed uh, until the, um, the name Judea became identified with the religion, and that didn't happen until the Hellenistic period. So even though the Bible wrongly, the King James Version wrongly has that word Jew all the way back to, to 1 Kings chapter 16, no real Jew existed until the 2nd or 3rd century B.C., when the Edomites and the, um, the, the Canaanite people of Judah started becoming the prevalent element in the kingdom of Judea. That's when the Jews formed as a people by, by the race-mixing portion of Judah and the Edomites and the Canaanites. And they are ostensibly, as we see Malachi, who's a prophet of that period, Malachi attributes the division and the problems in Judah to the fact that Judah married the daughter of a strange god, meaning that the bastard branch of the tribe of Judah, 
is the branch which is causing all the trouble. From the book of, of Daniel, and, and I sincerely believe that the book of Susanna found in the Apocrypha, that should certainly be the preface of the book of Daniel. And even if we don't accept it as written, being written by Daniel, the, the book of Susanna, this little story was around when the Septuagint was translated at, in the beginning of the 3rd century B.C. There's no doubt. In Susanna, when two judges, two supposed judges, these men were, were, were evidently appointed judges in, in, amongst the people of Judea, the, the people of Judah, I should say, who were deported to Babylon. When two supposed judges attempted to corrupt a young married woman, uh, I'm going to read from Susanna, verse 51, and, and Daniel is, has come to defend this woman, and he's Daniel says, put these two, meaning the two judges, the two corrupt judges, put these two aside, one far from another, and I will examine them. So when they were put asunder, one from another, Daniel called one of them and said to him, Oh, thou that art waxen old in wickedness, now thy sins, which thou hast committed aforetime, are come to light. For thou hast pronounced false judgment, and hast condemned the innocent and has let the guilty go free, albeit Yahweh saith, the innocent and righteous shall not, thou shalt thou not slay. Now then, if thou hast seen her, because they were making an accusation about something this woman allegedly did, if thou hast seen her, tell me, under what tree did you see them companying together? Who answered? Under a mastic tree. So, so the judge, the one judge said, under a mastic tree. And Daniel said, very well, thou hast lied against thine own head. For even now the angel of God has received the sentence of God to cut thee in two. So he put him aside and commanded to bring the other, the other judge who was making this false accusation against this woman, and said unto him, Oh, Thou seed of Canaan, and not of Judah. Beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart. Thus have ye dealt with the daughters of Israel, and they for fear companied with you. But the daughter of Judah would not abide your wickedness. So, so here we have a story, even if we don't accept this as Daniel, but I do, here we have a story that um, from the 4th century B.C. at least, and, and it probably dates to the, to the 6th century B.C. Like it, like it says that it does. We have this story, and we see that the seed of Canaan in Judah and the seed of Judah in Judah are being distinguished by the prophet. It's, it's, um, it, it's the same thing that Malachi does, and, and Malachi is a, a prophet of the 5th century B.C. He's a second temple prophet, and he's, Malachi is doing the same thing. He's distinguishing between the, the good figs of Judah, as Jeremiah called them, and the bad figs of Judah. So, so we have three witnesses. Jeremiah, 
Malachi and Susanna write in the prophets. And there's more than that, but we have three witnesses write in the prophets that even at this time, Judas divided into good and bad people, good and bad figs, whatever you want to term them. So, so simply because there were Canaanites in Judah doesn't mean that all Judah are Canaanites. It's ridiculous to assume that. Well, the people that want to assume that have an agenda. Well, well, absolutely. There, there's no doubt. Should we pick it up next weekend then, or? Um, yeah, we're going to pick this story up next weekend, and 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 then we'll be able to um, probably carry it further than I had originally planned, and. Um, that's it. That, that's what we'll talk about. The three tribes of Judah again next week. Pragmatic Genesis part 16. Praise right. Yahweh and thank you for listening. And um, good night. Sure. Praise Yahweh. Good night.